You are listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, Church, and blessed Easter to everyone. Uh, this morning's scripture reading is taken from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord bless you, church. Blessed Easter, everybody, and good to see all of you. That was a beautiful voice that read the scriptures this morning, wasn't it? <laughs> Except when it nags at me. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who did not know, that was my wife, Christina. And, uh, uh, and um, uh, it was, uh, it's, it's really a joy to see so many of us uh, right here this morning. And those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, a special welcome to you to Agape Baptist Church. Um, it's very fitting today for us to talk about spiritual resurrection. Uh, as Christians, we all should be living lives of spiritual resurrection, and we should be a church full of people who are in spiritual resurrection, a community where spiritual resurrection is a norm. Um, the text that we just read this morning uh, has really special meaning for me because uh, I was looking through One Kings during the time, like four weeks ago, a month ago, when my dear friend uh, and, uh, and, and partner in ministry, my boss, uh, J. Carl, passed away suddenly. And uh, it just, this text, I was, I was in this text at that time, and it just jumped at me. And I connected uh, deeply with it and uh, with the things that... Uh, I gleaned from it, and that's what I want to share with you as my reflections this morning. Some pointers that how we could be a better Christian, a better church, uh, as the New Testament calls us to be, where we are living out the resurrection life in an every member church. So 
um, the text is about Elijah, who was living with a poor widow, the widow of Zarephath. And basically, Elijah brought resurrection to this house. The question we want to ask ourselves is, is, um, is how we can be agents of resurrection in the lives of other people that are in our lives. And I want to, as a result of that, I want to just give to you three reflections. The first of which is this, that as we come look at this story, we realize that we have a better resurrection. Elijah was a man who had a prophetic preaching ministry during a time of great moral and political corruption. So he was always having to denounce sin. Everywhere he went to preach, he would call out sin. He would denounce it. An example is that at the beginning of the chapter, he says there's going to be a drought and God is going to judge Israel for their sin. And he brings a drought. And this is making the authorities uncomfortable and the king and the leaders running after him to ensure that they get him down. They thought that he was the source, the reason for all these terrible things that was happening in their land. And then he goes to stay with his widow. Now, she's a widow from Zarephath. She was a Gentile, and she lived outside Israel. Uh, God sends Elijah to her, and, and, and she takes care of him. Then we read that suddenly one day, the only thing that the widow has in this world, this little boy, She's all that she has. She's very poor. She has no other children. She doesn't have a husband. She is uh, she just this little boy, and he dies. And she turns to Elijah, and he says to her, so is this what it is? I mean, everywhere you go, you denounce people for their sins, and you bring the judgment of God down on them, and is that what you have done to me as well? Look, my son is dead. And what's interesting is that Elijah isn't sure himself. I mean, Elijah takes the little boy and he goes up to the upper room where he was staying and he lays down the boy on the bed and he cries out to God because he himself is not sure whether this has come because of him or has the Lord brought a judgment. He doesn't know. And so he cries out to God and says, Oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy? Is this from you? Now, the reason he's asking that question is fairly simple. Because we live in a fallen world, people. The natural order of things is that things continue to fall apart. Everything falls apart. Everything in this world is always going from wholeness to brokenness. Everything is automatically, inevitably going from life to death. And Elijah now sees that this tragedy has befallen this widow and things are falling apart in her life like it would everywhere else. And Elijah himself wasn't sure whether this was God's hand. He just wasn't sure. So he stretches himself out. And he prays. And we told that the Lord heard his prayers. 
And you can just imagine when the little boy comes back to life. We're told here it says, and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. And Elijah picked him up, the child, and carried him down. And imagine Elijah saying to this woman, look, look, your son, he's alive. And then the widow makes a statement. And it's worthy to consider because she says, now I know. You know, people, every place in the Bible when someone says, now I know, it's a wonderful place. God says to Abraham, now I know you love me because you didn't withhold your little son from me. Or like when Naaman, when he was cleansed from his leprosy, says, now I know there is no God except in Israel. And this widow says, now I know your words are true. Do you know why she knew? Do you know why you would know? Because what degeneration is never necessarily a sign of God's presence or judgment, regeneration always is. Moving from life to death, that's the way things are all the time. It's natural. It's the way that the world is. Everything falls apart. But whenever you move from death to life, whenever there is a resurrection, a reversal of the natural order of things, you know it is God. And people, you and I, we all need to experience this reversal in our lives. And that is what Colleen's testimony today revealed to us. There was a reversal in his entire life because he allowed Jesus to come into his life. And we all need that reversal, people, in a world that is broken, in a world that is, you know, we, we, we're coming through the, a, 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 a pandemic experience which is unique to our generation. We are experiencing war in Ukraine and, and, and economic collapse in, in Sri Lanka. And throughout your lifetime, you'll continually hear these stories and be part of them and be part of their narratives. And you need those reversals in your lives. I need them in my life. Otherwise, as you grow more and more accustomed to things falling apart in this fallen world, your heart will tend to grow harder. Over time, you will feel spiritually numb. You will feel battle-beaten. And you will feel deader in your soul. So we need God to intervene. And when God in His mercy takes you from death to life, your soul cries out, Now I know. Now here's what we can learn from this. How can we have this great ministry of resurrection? How can, how can we become a church full of resurrection people? The first thing that we have to learn is that what happened to this little boy here in 1 Kings and what happened to Lazarus in Luke 11 that Pastor 2 talked about last week, 
And what happened to Jairus' daughter in Matthew chapter 5, where all these people were raised from the dead and they, they experienced the miraculous raising from the, from the dead, is really not the best thing that happened. You know why? Because every one of these people died again. The little boy must have grown up and he must have died. Lazarus died. Jairus' daughter died. But you know what? We have something better. And listen, we have the true resurrection. In Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, when he starts preaching, everybody loves his preaching. In Luke chapter 4, verse 15, he says that everybody praised him and he started with point number one, like what I did this morning. You know, everybody loved his preaching. Everybody said, what a great sermon. Then at the end of the, of, of the sermon, when he finished point number three, they wanted to kill him. Now, I often wondered about that, where people said, oh, pastor, good sermon, great sermon. And by the time you come to point three, you say, ah, you know, what a sermon was that. The first point they liked, the second point they liked, but when it came to the third point, when he gets to the third point, he, he upsets them. Because he made this statement in the third point, uh, in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 25, 26, where he says, there were many widows in the time of Elijah during, during the drought when it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then Elijah was only sent to the, but Elijah was only sent to the widow Zarephath. There were many lepers in Israel during El Elijah's time, but Elijah was only sent to Naaman, the Syrian. He was sent to people outside of them. And they weren't happy to hear that. But what Jesus is saying here is that Elijah's ministry was just a shadow of Jesus' ministry. Elijah's ministry was not the thing. It's not the real resurrection. Why? Because everyone raised from the dead died again. They were at most resuscitations. But when you listen carefully to Jesus explaining the ministry of the resurrection, you will hear there are two parts to it. And, and Pastor Tu alluded to it last week in, 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 uh, in a story of the raising of Lazarus. He tells Martha, when Martha says, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And you will remember this, that in, 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 in John 11, uh, he says, I'm sorry. In John 11, he says in verse 25 and 26, 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, he who believes in me will live. And even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Look, sounds very profound. There are two things here he says. First of all, he says that if you believe in me, when you die, later you will live. And if you believe in me, you will never die. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, isn't it? You know, but he said that if you become a Christian, if, but what he's saying is that if you become a Christian, eventually you will be spiritually resurrected. You will have a new body. You will be in a new dimension. You live in a new, new dimension. Suffering goes away and evil goes away and aging goes away and everything that is degenerating today will be no more. You will be able to eat fish, that's important to many of us that we'll be able to eat in heaven. You will be able to go through doors. Wow, that will be amazing. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. A new dimension. Not an, not an, 
arterial one. You, you know, you're going to be able to eat, you're going to be able to drink, you're, you're going to be able to still uh, play music and, and make music, and, and you're going to be able to still be physical, but with a new kind of a body, a spiritual body, a new spiritual reality. A spiritual body. Then he says, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, what seems to contradict, that seems to contradict, but no, it doesn't. What he says is that, on the other hand, the moment you believe, there is a spiritual resurrection. You are already on the inside of you, moving from death to life, while the world is moving from life to death. And in the midst of all the chaos and the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, you have resurrection life. You are being regenerated by Jesus Christ and that will go on forever. It will be infallible. It will be invulnerable. It cannot be stopped. And that's who you are as a Christian. And if you die, and when you die physically, that will just make you spiritually stronger than ever before. In other words, the minute you become a Christian, you become spiritually resurrected. And eventually, you will be physically resurrected. Lazarus and this boy, as wonderful as it is, weren't getting either of those. They were just resuscitated at that point. They being raised from the dead are wonderful signs, but we have something better. We have spiritual resurrection. And when we die, we go on living in a new dimension. And those of us, those of our, our, our family members and friends and those who have gone before us, including my friend Jay Kyle, because they believed in Jesus, they've entered into that new dimension. In that sense, people, there is no death for the Christian. This is good news. This good news is worth celebrating every day. It is worth celebrating in the face of every tragedy, every calamity. In the face of, the world, in the face of a fallen world, the church thrives in this hope. This week, you know, we, uh, at CDC AP, we put together a, a, a series of videos of uh, calling our, our church planters and, 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 and leaders about what, they, what, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant for their city, for Jakarta, for, uh, for Almaty, you know, for diff different parts of the world. And there was one thing that ran across all of that stories. There is hope. We thrive on that hope. The church flourishes in the midst of all that is going wrong in the world, in this joy and in this hope. And you notice when this woman sees that Elijah had, has resurrected her son, what does she say? She doesn't look at her son and say, wow, this is great. Elijah, how did you do this? No. What she says is that now I know your message is truth. The, the, the woman, because of the resurrected boy, turned to the message. She turned to the truth. The resurrected boy was able to point his mother to the message of the gospel. And that is true of all of us. When you have a church full of resurrected people, 
People, you know, whose, whose lives are being transformed by the gospel. Anyone walking in will be attracted to that message. And like this woman, they will say, now I know your message is true. When we have a church full of resurrected people, others who do not know Jesus Christ at some point will have to listen to that message. People, that's the first reflection. The second one is this. God's sovereignty does not negate the need to pray. You notice that when Eli what Elijah does here, you know, he prays, and he prays so incredibly. And there's a balance in the prayer. You look at the prayer, and you will notice that on the one hand, there is such a respect for the sovereignty of the Lord. Notice Elijah doesn't say, Lord, this is so unfair. He doesn't say, he doesn't say this, is, this isn't right what you're doing, Lord. He doesn't say to God, you know, you're, you're unwise. He doesn't say you are unjust. He's completely respectful of God's sovereignty. And yet he goes after God in asking. And on the one hand, he sees the holiness of God. He sees, a, he, he sees the sovereignty of God and he respects that. That is not a word of complaint. And yet he's asking, he's asking God for a miracle. He's praying for a resurrection of, this, of, of, of a particular boy. And though God, God is sovereign over all things, people, He ordains the means of prayer. It is wrong, it is so wrong to think that just because God is sovereign, there's actually no need to pray. Ah, since, you know, since God knows what He's going to do, and since no, God knows what He's about and His will is going to be done anyway, what's the point of prayer? Have you had that thought in your mind before? That is not God, and that is not Scripture. The Scripture tells us that God works in answer to our prayers. The mystery of the sovereignty of God in prayer does not change this truth that is in James 4.2. You do not have because you do not ask. People, it is something to pray through a crisis. I know that every one of us knows how to pray through a crisis. Whenever someone is sick, whenever something goes wrong, whenever there's a tragedy, we are quick on our feet to pray. On our feet to pray. But it's another thing to pray always. In season and out of season, in good days and bad days, in good times and in bad times, to keep praying. Now I want to give you a I want to give you some scriptures and some, some thoughts on what happens when you don't pray. What, what scripture says will happen if you do not pray. And there are, about, there are about 10 of them here, and I'll run to them quickly. First of all, evangelistic work will be hindered. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, 38 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The second thing that happens when you don't pray is that you will enter into more temptation. Jesus, in, his, in, his, in, his, in, the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is something we ought to do daily. 
Are you praying daily that you'll be protected from temptation? Do you take for granted that you will be protected from temptation? And therefore, you stop praying against temptation. Number three, you will not get what you desire. Isn't that sad? Because in John chapter 15, verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. Do you pray your wishes? I mean, God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. You respect that. You honor that. But do you pray your wishes? Do you pray ahead for your desires of your heart, for your children, for your future, for your aging, even for your death? I pray through prayer cards. I find that it's one of the most effective ways of prayer to be systematically praying through, not just in a crisis, but all the time. And I have a card for my, for my death. And I pray, Lord, I wish to die this way if you so would mercifully allow that, Lord. I like my whole family around with me. And I pray these prayers. It may sound silly, but the scripture says, pray your wishes. And God in His sovereignty can do anything He wants, or He may give you your wishes. You will not have all the joy you could have. That's another thing if you don't pray. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. People, prayer increases joy. Prayerlessness increases anxiety. What do you want? Do you want to live a life of anxiety, or do you want to live a life of joy amidst uncertainties? Pray. Number five, you will forfeit some of God's protection and deliverance. In 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11, Paul practically was asking people to pray for him. And he says, and he will, he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us, for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of, my, of many. People, nothing wrong with praying daily to be protected, to be protected from COVID, to be protected from calamity. As often as you take the mask to put it on, would you also remember to say, Lord, the protection actually comes from you and not from the mask. And I'm depending on you, Lord, for the protection. You know, praying for protection should should be part of of a prayer that we pray every day. Pastoral prayer should be, pray, should be included for protection for the congregation on a weekly basis. Number six, you may misunderstand God's ways. Exodus 33 verse 13 says, Now therefore I pray you, if you have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. And people, uh, prayer unfolds God's ways in your lives. It is a journey of walking with God and in knowing God and experiencing, tasting His goodness and His mercy. Verse 7, you will continue to be worried if you do not pray. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which surpasses, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Look back your life for a little while and how many of your anxieties have really become reality? And, 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 and look back again. How many of the prayers that you have prayed in your lifetime when you were anxious have actually been answered? 
Now, when I do that kind of a reflection, I realize that more of my prayers have been answered than my anxiety is becoming a reality. So many of my prayers have been answered because I prayed in the moment of anxiety. People pray. Number eight, some may not be healed. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 15 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone uh, among you sick? Let him call the elders of the, of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. There is no harm, absolutely none, to pray for the sick that they may be healed and yet trusting the sovereignty of God. Number nine, you will not glorify God as much as you could because it says in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And number 10, finally, you will not accomplish as much for God. Because we know this text so well, James chapter 5, verse 16, the prayer of the righteous man has great power as it's working. It is no wonder, people, it is no wonder that the early church continued steadfastly in prayers. And the leaders gave themselves continually in prayer. Now we can comprehend why Paul admonished all to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, and why he wanted men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. Spurgeon said this, that prayer is a tender nerve that moveth the muscle of omnipotence. People, we cannot afford not to pray. Elijah respected the sovereignty of God and still he prayed and he prayed earnestly. Now the final reflection is this one. To see more of life, you got to pour out your life. You know, Elijah does something really strange here in raising the boy. He stretches himself out on the boy three times. He cries out to God in prayer, and the Lord raises the boy to life. Now, this is not some magic formula to raise a dead body. Please don't go around and say that I'm going to pray for someone and just lie on someone and do what Elijah does, because God does not need you to do magic stuff before you can perform a miracle. That's not what it is at all. Then what is this? Why is this included for us? And I don't think that I'm reading too much into this to say that there is a lesson in this for us. There's a lesson in what Elijah did for us. Simply is this, people, listen up. Elijah laid down his life for this boy's life. That's what he did. That's what it was. He stretches out on the boy. He poured his life on the boy and he did it again and again over a cold, dead body. People, are we the body of Christ, the resurrected people of the Lord? Are we willing to pour our lives over the spiritually dead and the emotionally dead? Are we willing to pour our lives over those who are dead cold towards us, who will not appreciate us, who will not appreciate our efforts or reciprocate what we do for them? Are we willing, even within the church or, or, or your family or your office, there are people who will be cold towards you. They don't think, they don't thank you enough. They don't recognize your goodwill enough. 
They, they, they may not even take, they may even take you for granted. Or they may take advantage of your kindness towards them. Will you still be willing to pour your life for them? People, there's no resurrection without death. Jesus poured out his life on us while we were dead in our sins. While we were yet sinners. While we were in that cold, dark place of rebellion and ingratitude towards God. Like what Elijah did for this boy, Jesus poured his life over us, crying out to God to let life return to us. He died that we may have life. Are we willing to pour our lives for the sake of others? And every member church is a life-pouring church. It will cause us. Your inner idols will be shaken. You will not find approval and recognition for pouring out your life. You may not be loved back. You may even be falsely accused. It may cause you anxiety and stress. You may feel lonely and rejected. But, what would, but would you still pour out your life and cry out, for life to return to them just as Christ has resurrected you. And every member church is full of members who are willing to pour out their lives for others. And there are at least 26 occasions in the New Testament where freedom and life are the promised outcomes of denying, crucifying, dying to self, and one of those verses was quoted by Colleen this, this, this morning. And every time you choose death to your flesh, death to your idols, God pours out life and freedom into you. The entire spiritual dynamic of, together, of, of life together for Christians as spiritually resurrected people is this. Because of how Christ has died for you to give you life, you are now willing to pour out your life for others unconditionally. You are no longer looking for rewards. You are not looking for recognition. You are not looking for returns. A husband pours out his life for his wife like that. A wife pours out her life for her husband like that. Parents pour out their lives for their children. Employers, employ, em, employees steward their, their gifts with the pouring out of their lives in their workplaces. Christians attend to the poor and the marginalized, even though the pouring of their lives may not yield results for years. But they continue to do that because of what Christ has done for them. Spiritually resurrected Christians pour out their lives because they want to see life. Resurrection life is their true final reward. It is their ultimate reward. And so people, as an every member church, we are a church that should be characterized, characterized by a people who live out the resurrection life, who pray without ceasing, and a people willing to pour out our lives for others. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg